0: If you'll take your Bibles out, please, and open them not to the book of Hebrews. We're going to camp out in Romans for the duration of the Christmas season. Romans chapter 8. And uh, if you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word. This may not seem like a Christmas passage to you, so hopefully I'll be able to make the connection. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, But we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give us grace to understand the power and the glory and the strength of hope. We pray, God, that as we enter into the Christmas season, that we would remember that hope was a long time in being answered. Give us grace to remember, God, that even as we hope and long for what you have promised us looking forward, that your faithfulness in what you have delivered gives us strength and sustains us. Aim us at the risen Christ. Aim us at his glory, even as we contemplate his coming. Help us remember That a baby born in a manger apart from dying on a cross is just another child. Let us always see the end of the story and the risen Christ glorified and seated at your right hand. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we have been thinking about hope. The last few weeks, our reading and our study in Hebrews... We were contemplating the question of hope, the reality of hope, the purpose of hope. And I think there's no time more fitting for an in-depth consideration of the topic of hope than Christmas, for Christmas reminds us that God keeps his promises, even if it takes millennia. The coming of the Messiah was promised at the fall, promised in the Garden of Eden. And God continued to work his eternal plan throughout all of history. It's important for us to understand that the chaos and the unrest that mark out human history is not out of God's control, nor is it something that he was struggling to manage. All of of creation is indeed progressing along the path of God's eternal decree. And beloved, understand this. The world is exactly as it should be at this moment. There is nothing out of place in God's creation. Paul tells us that God subjected creation to futility in hope. It's a remarkable statement, and when you pause to consider it, it should give you some, huh, sorts of moments. That God would willingly, purposefully, intentionally subject his creation to the futility of the fall, but that he would do it with a vision for what he was going to do. This is hope. It's a knowing exchange of temporary discomfort, misery, and sorrow for the eternal receipt of glory. And he further goes on to tell us that the glory is so good that there's no comparison. It's a concept which, frankly, is difficult for us to understand, but it's a concept that we need to know. So I want to just begin with the idea of creation being subjected to futility in hope. I want to kind of pick that idea apart with you, and I want to spend some time thinking about it this morning, and we're going to go on in the coming weeks and talk about hope and deal with how it impacts our lives and uh, what God gave it for. So we need to begin at the start, and it's the very clear realization and the very clear understanding that I assume all of us have, and that is that this world is filled with suffering. Suffering. There's no escaping it. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter where you turn, life is filled with suffering. Now, the scripture tells us that the suffering around us is a consequence of sin. It's something that happened because man fell. Now that I'm not in any way backing up from what I said about God's purpose or intention. But God always uses cause. He he gives, he is the agent of first cause, but he does use our behavior, and use our actions to fulfill his will and purpose. So suffering is a result of man's sin. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 17, in his statement to Adam, reading out the last portion of the curse, he says this, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So when God spoke to Adam, he said, Not only am I cursing the serpent, and not only is there a consequence and a curse For the woman, and not only is there a consequence and a curse for you, but now the creation that was given to you to exercise dominion over is also going to suffer because of your sin. Now, Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 8, he talks about all of creation groaning to be delivered from this mess that we put it under. And so, for us to recognize that this is what's going on requires us to at least passingly acknowledge the fact that our actions have consequences that are not reserved for us alone. Now I know that this is a huge concept to get around in this culture and in this age. Everybody wants to believe that their actions have no impact and certainly have no consequence for themselves. They are free to do what they want, to act in any way they want, and there should never be a price tag attached to their life For their bad choices. But the truth is this. From the very beginning of creation. God attached consequence to behavior. And he attached a curse. That not only impacted Adam. But impacted those who were under his authority. Remember that Adam was given the position. Of exercising headship. Under the headship of God. Over all of creation. It's the dominion command. Adam was instructed to go forth, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to subdue the earth. They were placed in a garden that was perfect, but the garden was a model for what Adam was to do with the rest of creation. They were not going to stay in the Garden of Eden forever. It was there as kind of a blueprint. They were going to have free access to come in and out of the garden, but they were expected to go out over the earth and to create the beauty that God had given them as a model in the garden over the rest of the earth. And when Adam failed to obey what God told him to do, and when Adam willingly and openly rebelled against God's authority, the earth itself was subjected to the consequence of Adam's sin. No longer was the earth a paradise, but instead it became a wilderness. No longer was the earth perfect in all of its ways, so that it would yield willingly to Adam's guidance and direction, but now it would actively fight against him. Where he planted crops, it would yield briars and thorns, and all the farmers in the field said, amen. (laughs) It happens. We get it. We, we see the consequence of this, and we see it not only in the earth and what it yields and the difficulty with which it yields anything at all, but we also see it in the consequences that were distributed throughout everything else. We see it in the, in the conflict between men and women and, and the battle of the sexes that goes on. That was the consequence that was given to Eve. I made your husband to be ruler over you, but you exercised your own will and stepped outside of that authority. You fought him and you chose to take that headship over. But I'm not going to rearrange things. He's still going to have authority over you, but your desire is going to be to always be exercising authority over him. And so the whole conflict that drives between the sexes was birthed in the garden. Everything that is wrong with this world finds its roots right here. And the suffering and the misery that has been lavished upon us is a result of man's sin. Now, having said all of that, we need to recognize the fundamental truth that that suffering and everything that came out of it is still the hidden will of God. It is exactly what God intended. From the very beginning. Now, I understand that right there, probably 90% of the people who will ever hear this message have just checked out. So hang in there for just a minute and let's try to support this scripturally. First of all, Acts chapter 15, verse 18 says, Known to God from eternity are all of his works. Known to God from before he ever did anything is everything he's going to do. Now you've got to ask yourself the question is there anything excluded from that statement? No. Would that include, oh, I don't know, the cross? Absolutely it would. And I know that that's a bit of a stretch, so let's just make sure that I am not adding what isn't there. Revelation chapter 13 tells us that the death of Christ was planned before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life. Now, he's speaking about worshiping the beast in this particular thing, but I want you to pay attention to the last phrase. Whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So everybody whose name is not written in the book of life will worship the beast. But notice the qualifying statement about whose book the book of life is. The book of life belongs to the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. This is not a, a response of God to a broken plan. God did not create a world expecting it to be perfect, and Adam sinned, and therefore God went, Okay, we need a plan. How are we going to fix this? This was the plan. From the very beginning, God intended the death of Christ. First Peter 1 Peter 1.20 says, Jesus, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. The coming of Christ as Messiah. The coming of Christ as a slaughtered Messiah. The coming of Christ as Agnus Dei, which means the Lamb of God. The coming of Christ as the one who would take away the sin of the world, was foreordained before the world itself was put into place, before the foundations were even laid, before anything else was done, the coming of Christ as the Lamb of God was ordained. And specifically, the terrible slaughter of Christ in all of its details was the plan and perfect purpose of God, according to His wisdom and plan. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28 says this, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. So what did, what did Peter just say? This is Peter talking before the Sanhedrin. And he's speaking, he's praying as he's doing it. So what, what is he saying? He's saying that everything that happened to Jesus was ordained beforehand by the will of God. And that every detail that came about, that the, the scourging, the trial, the back and forth between Herod and Pilate, all the things that, that are wrapped up in the story of, of the passion of Christ, every single instance, every single detail, every single bit of minutia was ordained by God before the foundation of the world. It was exactly what he determined to be done. And nothing could be done that wasn't permitted. Jesus himself told Pilate what? You would have no authority over me if it were not given to you by God. You could do nothing to me if God did not give you the power. So this idea that God himself was in charge of this is woven throughout Scripture. And it goes further than that. Because not only was Christ ordained before the foundation of the world, but those who belonged to Him were chosen in Him to be saved before the foundations of the world were laid as well. Matthew 25, 34, Jesus says this, The King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So not only are we chosen... But the reward given for how we honor Christ and how we love Him has been prepared for us before anything else was done. It doesn't make any sense to believe that God would reward the children that He chose to save if He hadn't intended it from the beginning, since He's already making the reward before He ever said, let there be light. Before He ever spoke anything into being. He's already preparing what he's going to give to those that he's chosen to make his own. This majesty is woven throughout. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there if you would. Ephesians chapter 1. We could read the whole first part of the chapter, but we won't. We'll just read a few verses because we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. But starting at verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved now that's that's far enough for right now it makes the point that we were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world and that everything that has been done has been done according to the purpose and the plan of God to save a people and that plan was in place before ever the words were spoken, let there be light. Revelation 17 verse 8 says, The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Those who dwell in the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So you've got to ask yourself the question, why would God do this? Was he, was he looking forward through time and seeing those who would love him and choosing them because they chose him? Would that not make us the author of our own salvation? The scripture gives us an answer. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord has appeared to me of old saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. What is the motive for God's choosing us? His love. It's not based on anything in us. It's not based in any response of God towards us. It is the simple declaration that God himself has chosen to love. He has chosen to love a particular people that he himself chose. Now, to recognize what this means slays pride in us. It kills us. It absolutely lays low any pretense that would say, I'm something special. Well, at least I'm something special apart from Christ. We are something special because of Christ. We are the sons and daughters of the Most High God, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But we need to recognize the truth that at the outset, God chose us not because of us, but because of Him. Because He determined to love us. That's why John tells us in 1 John 4.19 that we love Him because He first loved us. We have a heart for God because God Himself had a heart for us. Our love for Him is a response. And so you can know this without any question. When somebody begins to actually love God, when somebody begins to have a heart that is warm towards the God of the Bible, towards the Christ of the Bible, you can know that that heart is a response to God's power. You can know that God is at work drawing them in some fashion because nobody loves God who is not called by God. They may love a God of their own imagining, and many do. They may love a God that they created. They may love a God who exalts them because they were wise. They may love a God who promises to make them rich if they'll go through all the right hoops. They may love a God who promises them a happy, healthy, perfect life without any suffering. They may love a God that they've invented, but to love a God who is who God says he is, that's only given by God's grace. Because for us to recognize who God is means we have to come to grips with the simple fact that he is God and we are not. That he is everything and we are nothing. This is the shape of the world which God himself ordained. Now, we started off talking about a world filled with suffering. So I want to come back and touch this just for a moment. Because it's in the realm of suffering that hope takes on its greatest power. It's in the realm of sorrow. It's in the realm of hurt. It's in the realm of our weakness and our need. Where hope becomes brighter, becomes stronger, becomes purer, becomes more. So there are those who will look at the world around us and they will say, yes, okay, I understand God made the world perfectly and it fell and you can say that God planned it or not, but I know that all the bad things that happen in this world are not God's will because God's just not that mean. It sounds good, and on the surface, we can look at it and say, oh, okay, I I think you must be right, because God's a nice guy, and he loves us. He just told us he loves us. But is that scriptural? Because remember, if we're going to be faithful to who he is, our thinking must be formed by scripture. We're not permitted to make the scripture bend to our will. We are required to obey the word. We are required to submit to what God says in his word. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 45. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 45. We'll start reading at verse um, 1. We'll read the first seven verses. So God is speaking to Cyrus, who will be the leader of the Babylonian Empire, and he's speaking to Cyrus about 150 years before Cyrus is born, just because he's God and he can do that. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the armor of kings, and to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name, and I have named you, though you do not know me though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light. I create darkness. I make peace, and I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. So what's he saying here? He's saying, I'm going to raise up this man, Cyrus, and I'm going to speak to him because I know him. And I'm going to speak to him in writings that will be revealed to him when he captures my people and carries them away. And when Daniel shows him these writings, he's going to acknowledge that over a hundred years ago, this God of Israel called me out by name, and determined that he was going to give me power to subdue the whole earth. That's pretty remarkable. And what's the statement for why he'll do this? So that Cyrus might know that God is God. And then he comes back to the statement that I want to dwell on, and that I want to think with you about just a moment. Because Cyrus's subduing of the whole world will be anything but peaceful. Cyrus's subduing of the whole world will be anything but joyous, unless your name is Cyrus. (laughs) It will be pain, and it will be suffering, and it will be misery, and it will be death. But God says, I, the Lord, bring peace, and I, the Lord, make calamity. I, the Lord, do these things. And he's doing these things, and he gives us something to acknowledge right in the middle here. For the sake of my servant Israel, for the sake of my people, I do these things. Now somebody might think to themselves, Okay God, if that's how you're going to do for your people, then please don't. But recognize the glory that comes when God fulfills his purpose. Recognize the wonder of God taking his people out of Israel, taking them into the land of Babylon, and finally curing them of their habit to idolatry. Consider the power and the glory of them being restored unto their own land in exactly the right time to space everything out that so according to the prophecies given, Messiah will come when Messiah came. Understand that throughout all of the history of the human race, God had been organizing and ordaining the powers that rise to ascendancy in the earth to produce a culture that would make Rome. So that Christ, coming in the time of Rome, would be crucified. Never lose sight of the fact that everything that happened is to bring about the coming and the time and the fulfillment of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. See, one of the things that we often get wrong with hope is that we misunderstand its purpose. We tend to think that hope is about something that we want because it's happy and it's it's joyful and it's good and it's pleasant and it's going to make our day better. But hope is stronger than that. And hope is deeper than that. Hope is an acknowledgement that God has a purpose that goes beyond what we can see. God has a purpose that goes beyond what we can touch. God has a purpose that is farther than we can stretch our minds around. And he will fulfill his purpose. And because he is God and because he is good, we know that his purpose is good. See, my ability to produce good in anybody's life is limited by two things. It's limited by my understanding, and it's limited by my power. I might think I know what's best for you, and I might set out to do what I think is best for you, but in the end, I'm probably going to get it wrong because I don't know enough. But even if I get it right in my intention, I'm probably going to fail because I don't have the power to accomplish what I set out to do. Just ask my children with unfinished houses. (laughs) I don't have the ability to do everything that I set out, no matter how hard I try. And in the end, those limitations are also your limitations. They're the limitations that are common to man. We're not wise enough, and we're not strong enough. But those limitations do not belong to God. He is wise enough. And he is strong enough. And what's more than that, he is good enough. And all of his plans and all of his purposes will bring about the best possible good, whether we're capable of seeing it as such or not. This is the realm of hope. And this is what God is telling us when He says, I make peace and I make calamity. I, the Lord, do these things. But you need to rest in the fact and rest in the truth that what I purpose and what I do is good. And what I purpose and what I do is worth it. And everything that I am is to teach you that. Amos chapter 3. So Amos chapter 3. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. If that helps. Amos chapter 3. Starting at verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Speaking to Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And therefore... I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he's caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it's caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? What's he saying? He's saying in the end, I will tell you everything that I am doing, and I will tell you why, and I will tell you what. You must set aside what it is that you think you believe in order to understand what it is that I am telling you. What God is doing is always best, whether we can see it or not, whether it looks right to us or not. In the end, God's wisdom decrees the disasters as well as the blessings. So if he has subjected his creation to futility in hope, it's important for us to recognize that the futility that we see is important. It is the context for the hope. It is allowing us to know the power of hope. You see, wisdom comes to us when we consider the work of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13 says, Consider the works of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. What does Solomon tell us that we're supposed to do in the day of adversity? We're supposed to run around screaming and yelling and being angry at the world? No. We're supposed to consider We're supposed to sit and ponder and recognize the fact that this thing that has happened that I have no way of comprehending has come by the hand of God. And there is something in it that I am to learn of Him. There is something in it that I am to learn of me. And there is something in it that I am to learn of His purpose and of His plan. And so what I am called to do is to engage my mind according to the scripture, to engage my heart according to the living nature that God has planted in me, and to set myself to find hope in the midst of the darkness. To understand that what God is doing, God is doing, and it is best. Because in the end, when every other support fails, we finally do what we should have done in the first place. And we turn to God. If if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that this is our pattern. We run to every other thing first. We do our best to do everything that we can do. We try our best to satisfy all of our abilities, to exhaust all of our resources, to get it taken care of according to our own wisdom and our own ability. And then when we are brought to the point where we recognize, I have failed, then we decide to cry out to God. Over and over and over and over again, this pattern has been repeated throughout history. And over and over and over again, it's repeated in our lives. It's a faithless way to live. But when we recognize that we have no other option, we draw near to God. Psalm chapter 20, verses 6 through 8 says this, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed and fallen. We have risen and stand upright. Now that's the glory part of Psalms, of that Psalm. But the first five verses or so, are him complaining and contemplating how miserable his life is and how terrible everything is and laying charges against God for being faithless. See, even the psalmists get it wrong. But in the end, we come to the place where we have exhausted everything else we can do. And we recognize that God is still God. And that, beloved, is where hope begins. That's the place where hope begins to lay hold of us. And that's the place where hope begins to give us life in the midst of death. It begins to give us light in the midst of darkness. It begins to give us peace when calamity is all around us. It begins to give us stability when every power on the earth is doing its best to make everything die. God calls us to be a people of hope. He calls us to be a people who recognize that he's still in control of this and that everything that is going on helps us learn to trust his promise. Psalm 13 verses 5 and 6 says, I have trusted in your mercy and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And the more that we begin to know our God, the more we begin to know His character, the more we begin to know who He is and how He works with us, the more we begin to put His Word to work in our lives, the more we begin to process the world through the Word, the more we know Him, the more we trust Him, the more we recognize His character, the more we see His plans, even though we may not see how He's going to do them, we know the flavor of them. Look at Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, starting at verse 10. Thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So, I want you to pay attention to this. When is God telling them this? Seventy years before they come back. It means they're about to be carried away. Okay? They're about to be drug out of, Egypt, out of Israel and into Babylon. They're about to enter into the captivity. And it's not going to be pretty for them. It's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be a cakewalk. They're being carried off as slaves and conquered. The temple will be destroyed. The city of Jerusalem will be raised to the ground. Raised with a Z. Burned. (laughs) I saw some of you try to process that word. (laughs) It's going to be burned to the ground. And then he says this. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you To be carried away captive. So at the outset of the captivity. God says to them. I know my plans. I know what I'm doing. I know why this is happening. Israel learns it. Over the course of 70 years. All they had to do was read the prophet. And understand what God had told them. That's hard for us. It's hard for them. But beloved, we can stand and look at this and understand at least something of what God was teaching them. The question is, can we apply it today? Can we apply it in our lives now? Can we look at the circumstances that we're living in and the times that we're living in and the powers that are exercising unrighteous authority over us today? Can we look at those things and say, God is still God? He is still on the throne. He is still accomplishing his purposes. And he knows the plans that he has for us. And they are plans of good and not of evil. Can we say that even if we face the destruction of our nation? We should be able to. We should be able to rest in the confident assurance that our God is faithful. And as we learn to trust his nature, we learn to understand and trust his promise. Because hope is ultimately the promise of redemption. What God says and and what we want to define as hope, what is the essence of hope? It is the certain, sure, absolute truth that God says, I will redeem this. You go all the way back to the beginning, go all the way back to the fall of man, go all the way back to a creation subjected to futility in hope, And understand that God said, I give you this hope. I will redeem this. Even this. And God gave that to Adam and Eve even as he pronounced the curse. Adam and Eve did what? They saw that they were naked. They clothed themselves with fig leaves. Bad choice. Terrible, itchy stuff. Awful, awful, awful. About the worst thing they could have done. The scripture tells us that God made them tunics of skin. What's between those two things? The slaughter of a living animal. And since God tends to run to type, I think it was probably a lamb. And it was probably a lamb that they knew. And God slew the animal, and God prepared the skins and gave them tunics made of the skins of the animal. In the curse, when he pronounced the curse upon the serpent, he said that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. And you will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. What that is is called the proto-evangelical. It is the the beginning of, of the evangel. It is the beginning of the promise. It is the very first prophecy of Christ. At the time of the fall, God promised Christ. And it's not because he just thought of it. It's because the purpose of hope is the promise of redemption. It is the promise of what God is going to bring out of this time. It is the promise of the fact that God will make more out of brokenness then we would have known had we been permitted to live an eternity without ever falling. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1.12 that angels long to look into these things. Angels long to understand redemption. Not that they can't process it mentally, but they want to experience it. They want to know what it is to be redeemed. Because they recognize the power of this. They recognize the beauty of this. Knowing the power and hope of God to present and to change this momentary chaos into something beautiful is where hope begins to take on scope and glory and power and reach. What God is doing in our lives, God has been doing throughout all of eternity. Look at Psalm 31. Psalm 31 And we'll start reading at verse 19. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of men. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord. For he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. I said in my haste, I'm cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repraise the proud person. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. How wondrous. Even when we're faithless and cry out, Oh, God has forgotten me. God still redeems. God still preserves. And we know the strength of our God to fulfill his every word and to accomplish his every aim. And in the end, we learn by hoping that there is something profoundly powerful in delayed gratification. To to actually wait And see how God is developing what he's doing. There's something spectacularly glorious in understanding that God is at work around us. Taking these things that we see as only broken and then suddenly revealing them to be magnificently shaped according to his purpose. There's something powerful about that process of becoming. It's partly what Paul attests to in Ephesians 3 when he talks about God displaying his glory and displaying the fullness and the wisdom of his plan in the church as Christ is produced in us. It's what he talks about in Romans chapter 3 and verse 24 and following when he talks about God vindicating his own righteousness. It's this idea of of the revealing of everything that's going on, bringing more glory to God, and more joy to us, and more understanding, and more awareness, and more wonder, as God makes good on all his promises. This is why Paul says that this life's sufferings are not to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. That this helps us understand that there is something of the glory. It helps us get a perspective on just what is coming down the pipe. Turn back to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to get through the rest of the chapter just in passing to kind of understand what Paul's driving at here. So Romans chapter 8, and verse 28, first of all, it's one of the most misused, misapplied, misquoted verses in all of the scripture. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. So God, knowing who he was going to save, predestined us not only to be saved, but to be conformed to the image of Christ. God's purpose in your life is laid out right here. And you don't have to know the details of how it all fits, but let me give you a little clue. That thing that you're dealing with right now, that if you could change by waving a magic wand and make it go away, God put it there for the purpose of shaping you to be conformed to the image of Christ. Amen. Whatever it is, good, bad, or indifferent, That thing that you're dreading, that thing that you're agonizing over, that thing that you just hate above everything else, God put it there specifically to shape you into the image of Christ. Now the wonder of it is, since he predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ, it's going to happen. He's going to get his way you will be conformed to the image of Christ. Because what's at stake here is that Christ deserves to be the firstborn among many brethren. He deserves the honor of being the elder brother for everybody who looks just like Him. He deserves that. And that's really what's driving our evangelism is the idea that Christ deserves the full reward of His suffering. It's what drives everything that we are and it's what drives our hope. It's the fact that God loves us. Yes, He does. We are grateful that He does. But I'm far more grateful that God loves Christ more than He loves me. Because it's His love for Christ that is the bedrock of my certainty that He loves me. He will never let anything that Christ purchased go to waste. And that gives us feet. It gives us legs. It gives us stability. It gives us the strength to stand when everything around us is unsteady. It gives us hope. And it defines our hope in a way that is so much more than anything ever could have been. It is not to be compared with God's outworking of grace in us. And it's also not to be compared with the redeeming, unstoppable love of God. Reading on, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This love is overarching and absolutely glorious. And it is the fullness of knowing the character of God. But what's more, it is the wonder of being adopted as his sons and daughters. You have been brought into the family of God, you have been made his children. You have been adopted, you have been given an inheritance. And that inheritance is the inheritance that belonged to Christ. You receive the reward of his suffering. And in receiving the reward of his suffering, you receive the fullness of everything that he has promised. This is why creation groans. Longing for the fulfillment. Longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Because God subjected creation to futility in the hope of our being made like Christ. I want you to think for just a moment. We're almost done. I want you to think for just a moment. From creation until the time of Zacharias we read about this morning. God's promise had been hanging out there. Unfulfilled but being fulfilled. And still, there was hope. Still, there was the certainty that God would do what he said he would do. And the more people knew God, the more they were able to rest in that hope. This is why Simeon, standing in the temple after Christ was born, could pray with absolute abandon, Now, God, let your servant depart in peace. For I have seen your salvation. I've seen the promised one. I've seen the Messiah. I've I've held him. And because of him, everything else fades into obscurity. Beloved, Christmas is hope. Because not only do we have the earnest expectation of the revealing of the sons of God, but we also have the promise that when God gives us voice, he's doing his work. I know how frustrating it is to feel like everything you say and everything you do matters not at all. I know how hard it is to keep going when it seems like it doesn't do any good. But the scripture promises us that if we will trust our God and hope, we will see His glory. And all the time that people waited for Christ to come, all the time that was preparing this moment, every single circumstance was absolutely necessary to produce the Christ. I don't know exactly what God is producing right now, but I know that He does. And I know that the hope that I have in Him informs the hope that I am able to face this life with. And no matter what comes, And no matter what changes, and no matter what is done to us, or against us, or around us, we can rest in the hope that God is doing what He has intended to do from the very foundations of the earth. And what He calls us to do is to faithfully trust Him in the midst of it. And more than anything else, It's that heart which is the revelation of the sons of God. Because that's the heart that Jesus had. Father, I I don't want to do this. If there's any way possible, please let, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. I don't know what Gethsemane you're in right now. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what's rocking your world. But I know that if you belong to God, if you are a child of the King, then I know without question that what is going on in your life is exactly what it should be. And you can rest in that hope and trust in the God who is governing all of His creation. To go beyond that is sin. To fall short of that is faithlessness. But to stand in the place of trust is the very personification of hope. And that is what this season really is. It's hope made flesh Dwelling among us. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give us grace in this day to understand how powerful hope is. And let us walk in such a way, God, that we reflect that hope. Let us walk in such a way that our eyes and our ears and our hearts are attuned to your working. Let us be found faithful. Let Christ be honored and let us remember that everything that is is exactly as you have ordained and as you are still working out the perfection of your plan. God, we of all people should be ready to trust. Help us do so. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. amen.